I'll have you now turn with me in your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 18, where tonight we will be camping out in verses 24 through 28. And if you can remember it, I know it may have been a little bit distracting last week with the Night Sounds Choir singing so beautifully, but Pastor Mark led us through the first sections of Acts chapter 18, where among other things, we saw Paul laboring for the gospel at the synagogue as he normally would do upon every city he would go into. But here he's in Corinth laboring uh, for the gospel despite the fierce opposition that he's facing, which Again, it's sort of a routine throughout Acts. Paul goes into synagogues, and there's a division that happens. Some who are willing to listen, some who are turned off by his message. And so, despite all of this, or in the midst of all of this, Paul begins to get a little frustrated. Maybe he even gets a little bit worried for his own well-being as he sees the rage of these people. And so it's actually in this passage, uh, it's just a funny little thing that stood out to me was that this was kind of how I became, it was, it was a big passage in my journey towards Reformed theology, actually. And we see how in verses six and nine of chapter 18, having gotten fed up and again, maybe quite fearful, Paul proclaims in verse six, your blood be on your own hands or heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so he promises his shift, his apostolic shift towards the Gentiles. But in God's response, which we see in verses 9 and 10, here's what we see. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So here he is, probably dreaming. Do not be afraid, says the Lord. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, in essence, God encourages Paul to keep going, to keep on boldly proclaiming the gospel. But why? The answer is because God had many in this city who were his people. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? God says, hey, don't stop now, Paul. Keep going. Be bold. Be courageous. For I have many in this city who are mine. And so you might think, you know, if Paul was logical, rational, he might hear this, this encouragement and say, well, let me start packing my bags. I'll get on to the next city. If you already have people, God, who are in this city, I'm just going to move on to the next one. One of the common objections to the Reformed faith, if you've heard this, maybe you'll maybe nod your head in agreement, at least when it comes to our understanding of predestination and salvation, is that if God's people are elect, even before their salvation, then why would we need to preach the gospel to them? But the Reformed faith sees no issue here. God has his people who are his, yes. And it is our aim for those of us who have been reborn and regenerated by grace and awakened to new life, it's our aim to preach the gospel precisely because he has ordained the salvation of his people. And he has ordained this through what we might consider the human to human transmission of the good news. This is God's means to accomplishing his sovereign ends. And so it's fascinating to see Paul's response. If you've just been told by God, hey, I have many in this city who are my people, you might think to yourself, let me get moving. But God, or Paul doesn't think like that. No, Paul thinks very differently. He 
decides to listen to God's message and to stay put. So we see in verse 11 his simple response. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. To this day, this little story told quite casually by Luke. Luke's not maybe trying to make a big theological point, but it still stands out in my mind. God knows his elect and he uses us to reach them. It's one of those little truths that's so simple yet so profound. God's people are elect and he uses his people to reach those people. But the story doesn't end there. Eventually, Paul does leave Corinth and he boards a ship to head back across the Mediterranean and he takes with him a husband and wife team who will come to be important for our passage, a duo named Priscilla and Aquila who are introduced into the story earlier in chapter 18 and we find out that they were a pair of Jews from Rome who had been forced to flee Rome under a decree from the Roman emperor Claudius. And so though Paul's Sights are set on returning all the way back to Corinth, where he originally had started his journey. Once they make it across the Mediterranean for their first stop in Ephesus, he drops them off, so to speak. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila before returning all the way to Antioch, which marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And he spends a little bit of time in Antioch before then embarking out on his third missionary journey. Maybe you can think of the maps in the back of most Bibles that will show uh, Paul's journey, his three journeys. But it's here then that we come to tonight's passage, which uh, is sort of like the camera moving back to Ephesus. So it sort of follows Paul as he finishes his journey, and then it's kind of like, meanwhile, back in Ephesus. That's kind of the intent here of the end of chapter 18. So in this passage, which we're about to read we'll be introduced to yet another important figure who I've already mentioned, Apollos, and the story of his being brought up to speed to the full truth of Christ's gospel. So let's pray before we read. Our Father, as we turn to your word, we ask simply that you would help us to understand, to perceive your truth, this historical account of what happened. May we understand it in our minds. But also, may we apply it to our lives. May we see your divine wisdom, your divine meaning. And may we be faithful to not only be hearers of the word, but doers also, so as to not deceive ourselves. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Acts chapter 18, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public 
showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin to reflect and ruminate on this passage here before us, I want to start by asking you a little question, kind of a memory uh, game. Go, let's go back in time. Where were you 14 years ago? Where were you 14 years ago? It's kind of a random number, but that would put us back into the year 2009. Where were you? Perhaps some of you were in much the same place in life where you are now. Maybe your bodies worked a little bit better. You had a little bit more hair. I know that's at least true for me. I'm starting to lose it. Uh, Perhaps you weren't even born 14 years ago. Uh, That could be the case. Or maybe you are so young that you don't really remember 14 years ago. But for me, life was quite a bit different 14 years ago in 2009. I was a sophomore in college, and I lived in a residency house that was sort of owned and operated by my church, where college guys like me, we lived together, we prayed together, ate together, fellowshiped together, served our churches and our community together. And while all of this was well and good, one thing that stands out to me from this period in my life was that while I had an enormous amount of zeal and passion for the Lord, I was woefully lacking in theological knowledge and spiritual knowledge and scriptural knowledge. And that's just putting it lightly. You know, I'd grown up uh, hearing the Bible every Sunday, going to Sunday school, going to youth group, and, you know, listening to all the well, well-known worship songs, and wearing WWJD, what would Jesus do, bracelets while I was at church camp. I have all these memories. But despite it all, by the time I was 19, in 2009, I was still very scripturally malnourished. Though I wouldn't have known it at the time. I thought I probably was doing well enough as a Christian. But that year from 2009 into 2010 was perhaps the most pivotal year of my life, spiritually speaking at least, because it was the year that I discovered that theology actually was kind of fun, and actually it was really interesting, and it helped me to make sense of things I had long been asking questions for, but not really quite understanding any answers. I thought theology was just something for stuffy old guys and suits and ties and not something for the everyday Christian. In fact, I realized then that whether we knew it or not, we're all theologians. Everyone who proclaims to know Christ, we're all theologians because we, if we proclaim to know him, we must know something about him. And so it's not a matter of whether or not we are theologians, I came to quickly realize it was a matter of whether or not we are good theologians. Theologians who have true scriptural understandings of God and of his word. And so this was a massive realization. And as these kinds of realizations began to dawn on me, my study for theology then kicked into overdrive. My study of God's word kicked into overdrive. And this is all sounding very good, as if I'm the hero of this story. I can assure you, though, I'm not. This created its own problems then as well. I'm thankful for this season of of my life, but it came with its fair share of pitfalls as well. I was growing, yes, in my understanding, but now I can see that my head was filling up faster than my heart was able to process it. 
I was, to be quite honest, beginning to be very puffed up. I began to to develop a reputation amongst my friends and my roommates for turning basically every conversation I got into somehow into a theological conversation, often having to do something with predestination. I was very hung up on that doctrine, something I still confess to this day. But at the time, I was in a community of Christians that did not think about Reformed theology, really didn't know anything of it. And I had sort of studied my way into it, and I began to think, It's up to me to inform all of these Christians who really don't know anything. And so after a couple of years of this, though, I read something else. In all my reading, I finally came to this one little magazine. I believe it was Table Talk Magazine, a magazine written by uh, Ligonier Ministries, which is R.C. Sproul's uh, ministry, if you've heard of it. If not, no big deal. I don't remember who wrote the essay, And I don't remember which edition it is. I was trying to go back and find it. But in that little essay, I remember hearing about a phenomenon known as cage stage Calvinism. Maybe you've heard of it before. This is an interesting diagnosis. But if you've not heard of it, I think it's just essentially a funny way of of recognizing a problem that happens to many especially young, zealous converts to the Calvinistic faith or Reformed faith, and who upon finally hearing it and understanding it, they so get excited about the value of it and how it seems to explain so many things that they begin to get very uh, puffed up and conceited, as I had begun to do. And so I was known amongst my friends as just this person who, if if you let Zach do enough talking, he will just twist everything back to these conversation points. And it wasn't a very healthy thing. I had some knowledge, but I didn't have that knowledge tempered with with wisdom. But this rebuke that I read in the pages of this magazine was just what I needed. I'd gone through the mental revolution where my mind was sort of filled up with new insights about the character of God. But again, my zeal and my knowledge outweighed my ability to process it in my soul and in my life. I was not very mature or wise. And so I'm thankful for that article. I don't, again, I don't remember who wrote it, but I'm thankful because it finally helped me to see that with my knowledge, I needed to add to my knowledge the virtues, humility, gentleness, kindness, patience, and so on. So that's where I was 14 years ago in my life. I was still desperately needing to be taken aside, to be lovingly corrected and filled in about my gaping weaknesses in my faith. And there's perhaps no better example of this sort of loving correction in Scripture than here in the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to the zealous evangelist Apollos. Now, the details of this story are many and interesting. Luke, the author, introduces Apollos to us by giving us several little pieces of his background and of his credentials. So first, we're told in verse 24 that he was a Jewish man from the Egyptian city of Alexandria, one of the leading cities of the Roman Empire, if not maybe the second biggest city or most influential city under Rome itself. And it was well known in, the, in its time period as being a city which had a big reputation for 
an intellectual tradition. They were very smart, and particularly they were gifted in rhetoric and in philosophy and in oratory. So they, they were a city well-known for producing amazing speakers, people who could argue great points and think through great things and, and speak eloquently, which is what Luke here mentions of Apollos. And in fact, in this city, one of the greatest thinkers of the ancient world outside the biblical witness is is also from this this place as well. And his name is Philo. He's a Jewish man who lived about the time of Christ and the apostles. And he's known famously for trying to reconcile the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and the faith of the Jewish people with Hellenized Greek philosophy. and, And so he's kind of trying to bring these two into conversation as well. So he was known as a great, sharp intellect, and it's possible, though merely speculation, that Apollos may have known him, and if we go really far into speculation, we could say maybe he studied under him. But we don't know. All of this is to say, though, that Apollos is clearly a very gifted man. He is somebody who represents well the tradition of his city and what it's known for. So I love Luke's description in verse 24 where he says he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. The KJV even says it like this. He was mighty in the scriptures. I like that word. Just high praise indeed. So in this, we get a slight peek into the early Christian ideal for what every Christian ought to strive to be like. Mighty in the scriptures. To know them well. To know them truthfully. Nevertheless, this isn't all that Luke tells us about him. In verse 25, we're also told that while Apollos was competent in the scriptures and eloquent in his speech, that there were still some serious holes and gaps in his message and in his understanding. And while this is true for all Christians, we all have gaps in our understanding in one way or the other, it's quite clear from Luke's telling us this detail that Apollos had really important, really crucial gaps in his understanding that were really detrimental to his overall message. Although he knew the Old Testament scriptures very well, he didn't have a complete understanding. And so here again, there's a lesson for us. We may know the scriptures backwards and forwards, but still not really know the gospel. We may have all the stories of the Old Testament in our minds. We can remember them from Sunday school. We may not know Christ. That is an ever-present danger for those of us who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come, to use the lofty language of Hebrews chapter 6. We need to recognize this danger. In his earthly ministry, the Lord himself rebuked the Pharisees who they studied the scriptures. They knew the scriptures full well, but he says to them this, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, they were well-versed in the scriptures, but they'd missed the forest for the trees. Though they knew the prophets and the law and all that they pointed towards, they were yet blinded and unable to see and recognize Jesus for who he was, the Messiah, the very same message that Apollos then goes off to speak 
trying to convince people, to persuade them that Jesus, this man Jesus who was killed at the hands of the Romans, was truly the Messiah. But the key difference here with Apollos between the Jews, the Pharisees, was that Apollos was willing to listen. He was humble, and he was able to receive the correction of Priscilla and Aquila. He loved the Lord. We're even told he was fervent in spirit, which in the Greek is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean that he's fervent in his own spirit. He was just a fervent person. It could also mean, and I sort of think it probably means, he was fervent in the spirit of God. And so he's, he's a fervent man, however we understand it. And we can gather that he was probably a Christian, a, a, really, a real Christian, though one whose understanding of the gospel was not quite as it should be, but through no fault of his own. What Apollos knew, we can see that he knew well. And so was the baptism of John. But this was merely an anticipatory message. John proclaimed a baptism of penitential preparation, of readiness for this Messiah who was about to come. And so while Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the holes were in Apollos' understanding and what they filled in for him, we can sort of guess and infer that what he lacked was an awareness of the full magnitude of the meaning of Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension and his sending of the Spirit for the church. But again, let's not miss it. Apollos listens. That's a key thing to note here. Not only to Aquila, who was a fellow man, but to his wife, Priscilla, a woman. Interestingly, we should take notice in this passage of the fact that Priscilla is mentioned first, before Aquila, which in the ancient world would have been pretty unusual to put the woman first when you're mentioning a married couple. It would have been normal to mention the man first. And so this may have been Luke's way of suggesting that in their correction of Apollos, Priscilla may have taken the leading role in correcting him and sort of hammering out his imperfect theology. And so despite his great eloquence and his, his knowledge of the scriptures, his training in the city of Alexandria in rhetoric and philosophy and oratory, Apollos listens. He was willing to submit to their instruction and their correction. So important lessons here abound. Like Apollos, every Christian must listen. We must be willing to take a step back, to breathe, to say, maybe it's not a personal attack this person is making on me. Maybe they have something that I don't know. And we should listen, even if we are the educated ones, the ones who have spent time studying and thinking through things. So pastors, we must listen too. Every Christian must listen to another who is intending simply to correct them. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. This doesn't mean that you have to take everything they say to heart. But it does mean that despite our education, we should be humble enough to listen, to hear what they have to say. It's possible that they will have an insight about Scripture that we don't yet know. And Luke here, interestingly, seems to have no problem telling us that Priscilla may have taken the lead. Luke doesn't sense any, we don't sense any amb- ambiguousness or uh, any sort of awkwardness from Luke. 
that Priscilla took the lead. And so it's quite possible that one of the lessons that we can take from this, that we should take from this, is that there are times when women can and women should teach men and help them to understand God's word more accurately. This is, of course, speaking in the sort of normal, organic flow of Christian life. There's no problem with a woman taking a man aside and saying, hey, look, I think you've made a mistake here, or I think there's something you, you need to know, something in addition to what you already know. Unfortunately, however, there are those, of course, who see this passage as a sort of blanket justification for women in ordained office as pastors and elders. And it wouldn't be their only passage or even their main passage to make this case. It would just sort of play a supplementary role in this argument. But it is seen as a crucial one, especially given, again, Priscilla's uh, mentioning first, uh, which seems, again, to denote a place of prominence, and I'm willing to grant that, and even a place of authority. I'm willing to grant that, too. She clearly had some sort of authority in, in correcting Apollos. So I have no issue with this. It's very possible that she knew the scriptures better than her husband, even. Uh, We can probably all think of married couples where that's the case, where the wife knows the scriptures better than her husband. That is well known, that phenomenon, and it is okay. I would hope that the husband would want to know the scriptures more and would search them for for himself, but it's not a bad thing for a wife to be well informed in the scriptures. But that being the case, I think to use this text as a support towards women in ministry is quite a bit of a stretch because ordained ministry is simply just not in view in this passage. That's not the intention. It has nothing to do with that. What we do have is a story of a zealous yet uninformed Christian man who was taken aside patiently and calmly by a zealous but informed married couple, a man and a woman, who together correct him. And so we might ask, should this passage impact the way that we think about the role of women in the church? I would say, oh yes, absolutely it should. There's a lot of assumptions I'm sure many in the church today have about women in ministry that this passage can genuinely affect and correct. We may think to ourselves, a woman could never correct me. I'm a man. Absolutely not. That is wrong according to this passage. But should this passage cause us to question what the rest of Scripture says about women in ordained office? I personally don't think that it should. I don't think it is mentioning or speaking of that in any case, in any way. But let's make one final observation in this story, a different point entirely, and that is, very importantly, how. How Priscilla and Aquila call this out. How they correct Apollos. This is a key part of the story that we've not yet reflected on. If Priscilla and Aquila had been overly zealous heresy hunters, to use a sort of modern internet phrase, they maybe would have been very harsh with Apollos. Upon hearing his imperfect theology, his unfulfilled understanding of Christ, they may have rushed to the defense of all the hearers and said, no, Apollos, you're wrong. You are a heretic. But that's not what they do. They don't interject publicly and try to oppose him to his face for his faulty theology. 
Thankfully, they had a better and more refined approach. Because they were mature Christians, they could perceive all of Apollos' gifts and skills, his eloquence of speech, and his competence in the Scriptures. And though they could tell there were certain inaccuracies or gaps in his message, they were also perceptive enough to notice that these were not intentional mistakes. That's a big, big point. He was doing the best he could with what he knew. And they were able to notice this and to behave accordingly. And so, instead of cutting him off and publicly shaming him in front of everyone that he was speaking to, we see in verse 26 these simple words. They took him aside. They took him aside and explained to him the ways of God more accurately. Simply put, they couldn't have done it in a more wise way. Because they perceived correctly that Apollos had a, a good, he had good intentions, his heart was in the right place, his teaching was not necessarily false teaching, it was just unwhole teaching. They decided to take him aside calmly and gently and to correct him as brothers and sisters to him in Christ. They didn't try to put him in his place. They tried simply to enhance his message and to do so in a way that would be a boost to him, that would help him, that would encourage him. Make no mistakes, brothers and sisters, there will be times when we have to very ferociously defend the truth of the gospel. We will have to fight. We will have to stand up for God's word when we see false teaching being propagated in the church. There's even a time right now, I think we're in, in our church, in our denomination. These times are upon us. But there are also times, other situations, when we will need to behave a lot more like Priscilla and Aquila. We we must take brothers and sisters aside, not because we want to get one over on them, not because we want to embarrass them or shame them, but we must do so privately so that we may help them simply to know and trust and proclaim Christ with more accuracy. Wisdom, then, for us, brothers and sisters, is knowing the difference and behaving accordingly. And so we see in verses 27 and 28 the resolution, then, to this story. Equipped now with the full gospel, Apollos is commissioned and sent with letters of endorsement and credentials back across the Mediterranean, incidentally, where Paul had just come from. He's sent back over to Achaia, which is where the city of Corinth is located in that region, where he would pick up the torch, so to speak, of Paul's ministry there and begin to continue on doing what Paul was doing, arguing in the synagogues to the Jewish people that Jesus was the Christ, that he was truly the Messiah. And so as we zoom out then on this passage and just sort of look at all of what we see What we encounter here is the sovereignty of the Messiah. It's rightly said that the Acts of the Apostles, the name of the book, should really better be Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of God in his church. The Apostles, yes, are very active, but Acts is really pointing to us, out to us, God's lordship over all things. And so we should be excited to see what God is doing here. And though this passage is only five short verses in length, it's just another glimpse of God's sovereign ability to accomplish his beautiful will through his church. And here we see it done through, again, the calm and gentle correction, the loving correction of this faithful couple. 
as a mighty servant is sharpened by their kindness and their words and is commissioned for his ministry, a renewed ministry of renewed vigor in a place that had still, at this point in time, been very shrouded in the darkness of unbelief. And so the good news for us today, as we think back about this time, is to remember the the same sovereign Lord is at work among us today. He is still repelling and banishing the darkness of unbelief, still using his humble servants to strengthen and to prepare others for lifetimes of service who, like Paul, will go and be sent wherever the Lord causes them and wants them to go. And who, like Paul again, know that they will go because there are many in this city or that city who are God's people. And so we'll go with that encouragement, knowing not that hopefully something will happen in this city or that city, but that God has people in this city or that city who are his people. And so it's our responsibility, our calling to go where we are being sent. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord's grace, the same grace we hear of in this passage is still on us. It's still with us. It's still for us and in us. May we receive it by faith and give all glory to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.